This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Francesca Leah Block. Magic, like art, like love, you know, it is a practice. They're all one thing to me, frankly, but um, it is a practice and it takes a lot of work and daily diligence to, to commit to them. And we're being pulled. I mean, I'm constantly being pulled away, not just by the things I have to do to survive, but also the things that I don't have to do that somehow seduce me into thinking that I need them to survive, (laughs) so. Francesca Leah Block, MFA, is the author of more than 25 books of fiction, nonfiction, short stories, and poetry, and has written screenplay adaptations for her work. She received the Spectrum Award, the Phoenix Award, the ALA Rainbow Award, and the 2005 Margaret A. Edwards Lifetime Achievement Award as well as other citations from the American Library Association and from the New York Times Book Review, School Library Journal, and Publishers Weekly. Oh, Francesca, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to slowing down and having a really good and deep conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be on this program. Mm. Well, I'm honored and appreciate your time. And I just feel really drawn to your work because I feel like so much of it really delicately balances the beauties and joys of life with the absolute pain and difficulties that come along with it. So as we open up this conversation, I'd I'd really love to hear more about how you cultivate this balance and speak honestly to our confusing human existence it's funny I was just thinking about this topic before this uh, a little earlier this morning when I drive across town I'm going to the east side a lot more lately and every block I'm feeling one or the other of those emotions like this sky with the pink clouds is is making me want to cry and then these People living under the bridge are making you want to cry in a different way, you know, and it's always like that. I'm feeling both of those things almost all the time. And I remember having that since I was a child, except during the times when I've sort of numbed out and it's become too overwhelming to feel either of those things. But most of my life, I think fortunately I've been able to stay in touch with that and it can be really challenging, but I think really rewarding as an artist and also just as a person. Yeah. 
gosh, I'm thinking about so many of your book reviews and um, that I read in in <laughs> preparing for this conversation. And, and also there was something that you wrote on Twitter where you say, you were born to make beauty in the slaughterhouse of the world. You were born to toil. You were born to love. Offer yourself up to the light of the golden eye of the sun, to the silver mouth of the moon, to the gods and goddesses of love. Loss is inevitable, but do not fear it. End quote. Oh, I really love that. <laughs> I could really Thank read you that so over much. and over again. And I just, yeah, there's so much I could ask about this quote, but definitely something coming to me. And, and please share more as it comes to you. But how do we remember to center beauty in our understanding of the world? I think just the consciousness to look for it, because when you start looking for it, it is, it is everywhere, um, at least in, in many of our privileged lives. But I think nature provides it always for everyone, certainly, and one another, right, our, our interpersonal relationships. So I think just awareness around it. I think as a writer, it helps me. I'm constantly trying to keep a record of it for the purpose of my work because I want it to be the inspiration. You know, I use it as inspiration. But it, of course, also then feeds my life because I am paying attention. Sometimes when I'm, it's hard to pay attention and I have the purpose of creating art, it brings me back to that. So I think not that you have to be an artist to, to do it, but whatever practice, whether it's taking pictures uh, to remember, whether it's keeping journals, whether it's sharing with your friends, you know, um, just keeping a record as a reminder of what exists around us. And certainly art too, right? Through music, I feel it. Through visual art, I feel it. Through books. The quote that you mentioned was inspired by the Egyptian Book of the Dead in this really beautiful translation, which I can send you the, the name. Uh, and it was, I was researching that for the novel House of Hearts. And then I was realizing that the Egyptian Book of the Dead is full of all my spiritual beliefs that I didn't even know were so specifically there and that quote is is a lot from that yeah that's something something I've yet to dive into but I've had friends that have been really drawn to that book and have created entire uh, practices and life ways based from it so I know it's really powerful mm. so thank you that's now on the list uh, mm -hmm. and since it's still winter that's a really good time to get into it yeah but yeah, it brings up a good point for me of how can literature give us permission to feel and experience beyond what we would normally find in the confines of our daily lives? And how might this allow us to explore ourselves, you know, the world around us more deeply? I think, again, because of my work, um, I'm reading a lot to help my students to strengthen my own work. Uh, I'm looking at it through the lens of craft, but of course, what is 
really amazing about these books, it, it's often the themes. And when we revisit some of the great classic books and we might think, well, you know, it's a classic. So therefore, is it really gonna be relevant? And then you go back and you see these, these lessons in, in, this, in these books. I only in the last maybe five years, I believe read Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And I somehow missed it growing up. And I, I thought every single one of my students needs to read and reread this. It is so amazingly relevant for today. And, and craft wise, it's perfect. It's a perfect creation. So I don't know if I answered your question exactly. I'm just, um, but I know that there is so so much to be learned from the books that you love and also to just allow yourself to love what you love and do a deep dive into it and then to understand why so that as an artist, you can learn from it and strengthen your own work, ideally. Yeah, it's almost like apprenticing with the mm. teachers and the, um, whether it's our teachers, our elders, like folks that we respect. Mm. And I wonder where that desire or practice of apprenticeship has gone, because mm. I, I really think about that a lot with children I know in my community and how our education has shifted so much and how there were times in our human history where we really practiced and apprenticed and honed skills for years and how that shaped us and our human experience and our relationships and our craft um so or our crafts so I yeah I really appreciate thinking about that that when we read, we're almost taking time to be with mentors in a sense. And that's really beautiful. It's that I love the way you're phrasing it. And I think that certainly in the Thorn Necklace, which is my memoir and craft book, I talk about find a mentor is one of the principles of writing for, for how to be a writer in the world for me personally. And then I, I talk about, well, I was really fortunate. I have to have it in my, my dad but a lot of people might not have that. There are maybe a teacher, but you might not have that. But yes, I talk about books. You know, it's right there in the book. Uh, I've been lucky to be a teacher, to have, uh, I've worked with some of my students for over 10 years. And I think I, not only is it really hopefully helpful to them, I, I find for myself, it, it's, I learned so much about the craft by teaching the craft, you know, and again, I'm turning to the books to, to deconstruct and, and help demystify some of this magic that not de I mean, it's still magical, but to try to understand how this magic is, is done. So I, I really feel that perhaps in, in this world of, mentoring writers there that that model exists uh, in a nice way so I, I feel really fortunate to have that mm -hmm. yeah speaking of the thorn necklace which really 
I think focused on the power of creative process and the healing journey. Um, I'm wondering about your own journey and how it's evolved in your years as a writer and what magic the written word contains for healing from varying perspectives of life. I mean, it certainly helped me profoundly. I, I, really would say it sounds a little dramatic, but I do feel it sort of saved my life or saved my sanity. I mean, I always went to writing as a way to help calm my anxiety, understand the world, connect to others. As I became published, it was a lot easier to actually connect to others through it. And I feel extremely lucky for that. And the bonds that have developed through my writing, all, most of my relationships actually started e through someone either reading my work or a student or a friend who you know I share work with, went to school with, so teachers of mine. So it, it's been healing in so many ways both the internal process of just getting the story down and then the more external process of, of sharing it and connecting and hopefully helping someone else I've had that experience too where people have been in really painful circumstances and have felt heard or understood through something that they've read maybe that I've written I read a book that I love. I think you'd really like if you have not read it called The Midnight Disease. And it's about hypergraphia and this woman who had, uh, was, she's a neurologist. She had a terrible trauma and couldn't stop writing. And later when she healed some from it, she wrote a book based on these sort of endless writings covering the pages and pages sort of ramblings in a way but it turned into this book on this science of you know this the way that writing actually changes brain chemistry and can be a source of healing they did a study on holocaust survivors and they said that the two things that helped were writing telling their story rather and um, massage so both things that get something out of the body in a way and I, I think writing is is a, a form of that too or has been for me mm -hmm. I'm kind of um, being drawn to as we speak about healing also speak about pleasure and I really love in your books that uh, they offer these pathways to give ourselves permission to be present and to find pleasure within our environments and our inner selves and and so I'm interested in the role of pleasure both within your books for the characters and within the act of reading and imagining itself mm. I know that I get a lot of pleasure writing about my characters experiencing pleasure so I've always just done that for myself and Hopefully that has translated. I tell my students, write about the things that you're obsessed with. And don't worry if there's something that you think is insignificant. Because if you're passionate about the 
basmati rice, the dal, you know, with ginger. I mean, like it, whatever it might be, it, it, and you write about it with specificity and passion and detail. The reader's going to have that visceral response and they're going to be able to derive pleasure out of it too. So I really tried to, to do that. And when I was very young, I went to hear the band X play. And I remember, well, it was, you know, late teens. I remember watching the people move to the music and, and, and thinking, I want to write something that makes people feel viscerally the way music makes me feel because no other art form is so gets into my body in that same way. And so that's another motivation for me when I'm working. It's how can I make someone else feel, and not always just pleasure, sometimes it is pain, but feel in a visceral way what I'm feeling. Maybe, maybe selfishly to make me feel less alone, but also hopefully to give them something, some kind of a gift to and then maybe they are, you know, if, if they are also writers, they might think about ways to go deep into their own experience to translate it so that someone else can feel and experience that. And then that, of course, is, I think empathy starts there. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I really see the wisdom in this because I think when people are passionate and in love and present, with what they're working on, speaking to, writing on. I know I get drawn in. I mean, as soon as you started speaking about rice and doll and ginger, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like if somebody were really passionately writing about that, mm -hmm. I'd want to know more. And it's mm -hmm. not maybe mm -hmm. something that I, it would be my go-to if somebody said, well, what are your right. interests? Maybe I wouldn't right. say that, <laughs> right. you know, but if somebody were really into that, I'd be like, yeah. Right. And I think there's so much beauty in that itself because – in a sense, it's also taken out of the capitalist model of how do we find joy or how to, you know, it's like finding our interest again, or, or I don't know if that's the way to say it, but it doesn't cost us anything to feel passionately, to write passionately, to share passionately with what we're drawn to in this world and I think that actually makes us healthier humans it revitalizes our relationships with ourselves and others and I think it's a real and it's almost a practice of gratitude as well because mm -hmm. when we're focusing on yes. what we love and what we're passionate about we're in a creative grateful state absolutely yes yeah I'm not necessarily a writer, but now I'm like, wow, I actually, I'm like, okay, where's my journal? Because this <laughs> seems like something that would actually uplift me throughout the day and focus my mind. I was just speaking with somebody about mental hygiene and it's really easy. I know for me personally to start feeding, whether it's negative thoughts or anxious thoughts or, yes. um, or just things that not aren't necessarily reality, but I can really make them reality in my mind. And then I live by that. And so, uh, one of my mentors was like, okay, Ayana, like mental hygiene, you need to, you need to reel this one back in. Mm -hmm. And I thought, and so again, it connects to what you're saying for me, because when we're in these practices of passion, love, gratitude, 
it is mental hygiene. We are cleaning up the corners of our mind and we're refocusing ourselves on on things that bring us life rather than everything else that can just seep into us so easily. You know, it's not hard now, especially with all the media and just all the emotional pain that so many of us feel. Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy to get bogged down by fears and stresses and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm feeling very grateful to be reminded of these practices because I think it's also empowering like we don't need to be stuck it's another way to like come back to the pleasure and the beauty of life and yeah so thank you yes thank you no and it's true it's it's thinking about being in the flow of something which isn't always easy to get into the flow but when I am writing when I am dancing when I am listening to music when I am teaching or talking about writing with someone else I walking in in nature, you know, with my dogs, there's, there's no cost to those things. And they are so completely uh, consuming for me that it pushes the anxiety away in this really powerful way without trying to force a positivity you know, I think I'm not good at saying, well, just, just see the bright side. You know, that's not, I, if the more I do that, the more I'll sort of see the dark side. But if I do something actively engaged with the world actively, it's, that's when I can um, start feeling much, so much better. So I think that's, and, and it's interesting you bring up capitalism in the sense that as you say, these aren't things that we have to depend on that model for in the same way, most mostly. So a good reminder for for me too, because it is so easy. And and just being with people you love, really, that's the number one thing Um, Mm -hmm. without phones around. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Distractions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fingers bitter better We are waiting forever after On the blackboard Meet me at the station I'm at platform seven Waiting for the wind to change Hold his neck up Lifeless like a turkey Limp and feeling breathless Pressed upon the coffee stand There's an interview you did with Sex Magic Podcast, and you said, quote, the books make me aware of what I need to learn, end quote. And I'm wondering, how does the process of reflection and refraction through storytelling alter both the listener and the storyteller? Nicely said. So I think when I set out to write a book, I don't necessarily know why I'm compelled to write it. I don't start with the theme, in other words. 
And most of my students don't seem to start with the theme. And when I teach a class, I bring up the theme at the end and I say, write down what are the things that you believe in that you, when, if you thought you were to die tomorrow, what would you want people to know that you believed about the world? And you can write them as cliches. It's just for the meaning as opposed to the, the way you say it. Although many of them say very original, beautiful things. And then I say, is that in your book? And they'll look back and, oh, it is. Or no, it's not, but I could put it in more. So I think these books teach us, or these, not just books, but I think art teaches us what it, you know, what it is, at least for me, I need to, to understand or learn. When I wrote House of Cards, I didn't understand that it was, a. I knew there was a, a myth that I was very drawn to. Um, the character emerged sort of full-blown in my head one, one day um, in response to the way another book ended in a, that I'd written in a very tragic way. And this character came to avenge that character. And I had these elements. I knew it was going to be set in the Salton Sea. That's all I knew. And I discovered the story as I went. And I discovered ultimately that the story was a search for love, but not as much the romantic love that's that's depicted, but finding the self and putting the self back together. So that was something that I had to, you know, wander through the desert for a long time to discover. Interestingly, I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, my beloved therapist of many years, speaking of mentors, passed away, got very sick and passed away within the year. It was a few years ago. And I went, I was having trouble going to see anyone else because just she was such my soulmate, you know, mentor. And I found a woman I liked and I still wasn't sure because it was just hard to attach again. But she said this, I was telling her about my book and, or no, I'm sorry, I wasn't even talking about my book. I was just talking about what was going on in my life at the time. And she said, it sounds like you're wandering in a desert, like so thirsty for, for this love. And I started laughing. I said, do you know that's the book I'm writing basically? You know, it is that search in the desert. So synchronicities like that also sort of validate, that's another topic, but um, that I feel like I'm on the right path when I, when I have that. So anyway, that goes way, way off topic, but to your point about, what was it? <laughs> Sorry. No, it's good. I like when the stream of consciousness takes over and we just are led by what we're being, um, yeah, what we're being. I'm sorry, theme, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. no, I, I like when that happens. You, we just get taken by the stream. But um, yeah, I I want to think about the importance of magic and enchantment in a world that is rapidly attempting to create uniform experiences of reality and I see as social media grows it seems that we are often swapping imagination for simple stimulation and I wonder about the long-term impacts of there being less reading less imagination I think less magic because of the ubiquity of social media and our phones 
Yes. And I think that's in the last few years, I've been really developing a magic practice and I, I haven't thought of it as specifically to counter that, but I think that makes perfect sense. Um, this is something that I do with collage and candles and water in glass and the moon and these like sort of poems, drawings, not for sharing as as my art but for my own spiritual practice and healing um and zero phones and zero you know posts and photos myself or whatever the stuff that we do I don't know anyway so I think that it magic like art like love you know it is a practice they're all one thing to me frankly but um it is a practice and it takes a lot of work and daily diligence to to commit to them and we're being pulled I mean I'm constantly being pulled away not just by the things I have to do to survive but also the things that I don't have to do <laughs> that somehow seduce me into thinking that I need them to survive <laughs> so I think I think it's um, this interest in in spirituality and mysticism and magic and tarot astrology that you know is partly being um, distributed through the internet which is great right we have access to that in in different ways um, some of my friends who who do that kind of work and reach people broadly but also to find it in, in away from that in a in a concrete way in real time and space yeah I guess I'm also or following this thread is it seems that reading and free thought are seen as threats to the current systems of power which I guess really isn't anything new when thinking back in history but you know, now I'm thinking about so many book bans and school districts across the United States, you know, for instance, and I'm just wondering, what is it about the power of imagination and transportation that makes it so threatening to these vast systems of power? You know, I, I love it when my students talk a lot about trigger warnings, right? And and of course, I don't force anyone to read anything that makes them feel that way. But I, I stop and I say, just think about this fact these are words on a page that's all they are but they're making us feel this how potent that is you know whether you choose to read them or not whether it's too much for your mental state at the time but just the fact that these words are doing this that's take that's power so it would make sense to me that you know we're being distracted from some of that um, in order to, to not fight back against some of this stuff that's happening. And I think, yeah, I do notice a huge difference, less people reading, but storytelling is survival. It's how we survive ourselves, but it's also how we help others survive. You know, the there's a book called Wired for Story by Lisa Cron that she just talks about the way storytelling evolved to keep us alive because when you're sitting around the campfire talking about how you escaped the dinosaur you know you're you're not just engaging somebody in in a way that takes their mind off things you're you're actually showing them how to 
survive that dinosaur, you know, that whatever it might be, whatever that symbolizes now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk more about this idea of survival. And there was, well, there's this kind of twofold. There was a quote um, from your recent interview in the Daily Mail where you say, quote, I think that those two things, the survival aspect and the craft aspect are actually connected. That's another thing that I teach in order to learn the message of the story, in order to survive, one needs a structure that helps the reader identify with the character to go on the journey of the story and learn the message of the story, end quote. And and maybe the second part to that is thinking about the value of myths and archetypes as profound messages for survival. And in that same interview, you say, quote, I feel that these stories give us a template on how to survive in the world in a way. That's why they've survived so long. Even if we don't understand why we are drawn to the story, we may still feel it resonate and give us some kind of guidance. I love them for that, end quote. So thinking about your work continuing this legacy of myth and how do you connect it to the greater human project of survival? I I think that I like those quotes because I sound much more articulate than I feel now about it. Um, but let's let me think if I can add anything to that. Thank you for sharing them. I think that, as I said with House of Hearts, I didn't know why I was drawn to the particular myth. Um, I have others too, like Orpheus is one, Persephone. Um, I just keep going to them, trying to understand why and. Maybe I'll never fully understand why, but there is something about going into the underworld, about seeking the beloved, about piecing someone back together that resonates for me as a human in the world. So I think just following that desire to understand ourselves and looking to these mentor stories, as you kind of created that metaphor at the beginning, I know for me it's just it's just been essential, and I'm always trying to encourage people to follow that path. And I think the craft aspect of that is just how do you make the reader care as much as you do about this story and this character, so that they will also understand this message that the myth um, imparts. So whether that is making a character gifted in a special way, flawed in a certain way, whether it's making sure they have a clear want or desire, a strong antagonist, whether it's about seeing them change, which I think is really the basic of a a principle of, of a story is how does someone change over the course of the story, which is a guide for how to we, do we survive change, which is inevitable in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm like this change that's inevitable. I'm thinking about the book you wrote called Love in the Time of Global Warming. And I think it's interesting how you captured human emotions and setting regarding a process that we still don't even know the full ramifications mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. And so I think the question of inevitability and the mystery and how those two things connect because 
like even of course death is coming for all of us like that's inevitable but there's a great mystery of how we're going to live until that moment and Mm. similarly with climate change i think it signifies a death yeah a a grand death of many different species of ecosystems of ourselves in many ways of our history and legacies but yet again we don't we see it happening and sure we have data and we can point to graphs, but ultimately we don't know how it's going to unfold. And we don't know when the next natural disaster will hit or where or how severe. I mean, there's just so much that is com- so it's interesting. It's like inevitability and mystery. I keep going back to these two mm-hmm. words and and mm-hmm. and I think you were able to work with those two themes really well. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. I love the word mystery, you know, and and for me, there's a spirituality that is very redemptive in the face of the inevitability of change. And change also is not, is not always, it's scary, but it's all often a really positive thing, right? Birth is changed too. So love is changed too. So I think growth, you know, all these things, healing. Uh, I think though, what I, for me, it's, it's this idea that something goes on and continues no matter what. And again, I, I would call it love. I would call it art. I would call it spirituality. I would call it magic. They're all really one thing to me, but I mean, this is my this is maybe the first time I've said this publicly and it when I say it privately people just look at me like what are you talking about but it's just my reality of my spiritual beliefs are are based in the idea that for me just for me personally when my children were born I had this sense that I was you know almost complete um there was there's still was still a missing piece but that I was complete in in finding their souls again it just felt so clear to me and I felt that way with a few other people in my life as well and I think that that feeling however it it whatever it looks like for an individual might be very different and have to be the birth of a child but love or whatever you know it, it 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 goes on it's it's eternal for me so that's how I deal with this a lot of these feelings of fear and of change and uh, I guess that word mystery goes along with that too because I don't understand it that's why I'm so inarticulate as I talk about it now but I I know it's real I believe in it just like I believe in the mystery of you know the universe Mm -hmm. yeah thinking about like love mystery magic enchantment they all they're all touching each other in one way or another and uh, and I wonder in times like these how we turn to magic and enchantment how do we imbue the places in which we live with this degree of magic as you often do in the landscape of California because if we know that we are directly connected to the earth and there really is no separation there I think that to imbue our environments around us with that. I love the word enchantment because I think there's so much respect in that word. Um, Yeah. There's, 
and the gratitude, of course, to be enchanted is to be drawn to in a way that's so um, like I could feel it in my body what enchantment feels like. But I think, you know, as we've talked about disconnection or social media or the distractions, that's like really a block to the enchantment. And if we're so focused on our phones or taken to some other place, it's really hard to imbue just outside our window with enchantment. We may not even see the enchantment. I think that's part of it. When we're distracted, we may walk right by anything, whether it's Mm -hmm. the butterfly, the dandelion coming through the crack, the, you know, our neighbor sitting on the porch with her face in the sun. I mean, there's like all these moments and all these stories and so many worlds and lives happening all around us. But I think in today's world, also just being so fast-paced, it's hard to slow down enough to imbue our surroundings with this magic enchantment. So yeah, I don't know if you have a practice for this or the importance of that re-enchantment with our environments. Yeah, um, I do want to say one one thing just back to the words magic enchantment. I'll do I, I was teaching a class on fairy tales and magical realism. I do a lot of that. And, and I was re- researching the meaning of the word of fairy tale. And there's a Tolkien quote about not being able to define magic, really. It's something that, you, that is ephemeral and, and you, you can't quite ever define it. So I'm constantly looking for ways to understand and express it better and words sometimes I love words so much but not a, a lot of times language isn't even enough but that's sort of an aside um when you talked about how to bring it to the environment I think it's some of the me- things I mentioned earlier like having to started this magic practice that it I, I always wanted to do something like this and I felt a little, maybe I don't know a little judgment of myself for it I don't know why but when I started doing it I was like, oh, this is what I did when I was 12 years old, you know, and younger all the time, like dancing in the garden with the flowers and, you know, building little fairy houses or whatever, Um, lighting candles, you know, doing collages, writing little poems that aren't for the intention of publication, drawing little pictures for, you know, of what I imagine my world, I would want my world to be like. So always dogs. Dogs always, always help with that for me in my whole life, animals in general. But for me, it's been pretty spiritual, deep relationships with these dogs I've found mostly. So I think, you know, cultivating that, you know, um, and I've been dating someone for a few months now. And what I, I keep sort of joking about these peak moments, you know, like I'm having another peak moment. And they'll be like, wait. What? <laughs> but it's it's just because I'm I'm paying attention so much when I'm with him, and I'm honoring that moment to moment sort of experience. So I'm seeing stuff much more often. I had that also when my children were young because I was just so focused in on them and my relationship with them in in the moment, the care and the love. So I think I think it's a it's really a lot about attention, too, which is as you know your whole thing about this sort of slow discussion and and thinking about things, feeling it, being present. It's powerful. 
There's so many things to ask you, and I know our time is getting shorter, but there is definitely a theme that I wanted to bring up, which is the hero's journey and the journey of womanhood. Mm. And I'm just thinking about the balance of sharing what it can be like to come of age. And I'm curious to hear your reflections on healing our inner girl and the journey of womanhood that comes with it. This is definitely something very personal to me right now, um, being a woman in this world and and knowing that there, you know, I've had a lot of my own traumas that have come with that and I don't want to bring them along any longer. <laughs> I don't want to continue bringing them into the next year, next year. So, um, mm, yeah, mm-hmm. just this healing of our inner girl is... Mm, mm. In the journey of womanhood yeah just I'd love to hear your thoughts on that it's a constant one for me it will probably be till I die I can't imagine it ever fully healing to be honest that doesn't mean I can't be feel a lot healthier feel joy certainly help others maybe help others more because I'm st- I still have to confront it so so much I I think it is an ongoing journey and that's it that's okay to to know that part of the healing is just feeling it being doing the work uh and being conscious and aware and probably biggest thing of all you don't have to do it alone my motto is basically life is really can can be really hard and we don't have to do it alone. We just have to reach out a little and and open ourselves a little and we'll have others there to support us as they also go through this same journey. And that to me is, is so powerful and beautiful. And when I write these books, which revisit this this journey over and over again, really, it doesn't have to be a book again. Someone can do it through many types of work, but I'm sending a message of in a bottle sort of out into the world and saying like, I'm experiencing this. Are you, you know, h- how can I help you? And when I get a response, then I'm also healed more. So I think it's about community consciousness, being present, mentorship, being mentored as you brought up, um, mystery, uh, spirituality, all the things we've talked about is it's part of that, that journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love how in your book, especially your new book, House of Hearts, often focuses on a journey or a quest, but this is not just a typical hero's journey. There's something, 
I think deeply feminine and complex as well. And I'd love to hear more about how you tap into the feminine journey archetype through writing. So I, interestingly, I wrote this book, very stream of consciousness in vignettes. um, Like I was sort of dreaming it. And once I had that draft down and it, it did have a journey to the underworld, which they sort of all seem to have, but the then what I did was I, I kind of put a much more rational hat on and I started looking at story structure, traditional story structure, and I studied it and I rearranged the story in a much more traditional way. But because I had started with such a deep internal mystical stream of consciousness poetic approach. I'm hoping that that common, you know, that by adding this structure, it it actually strengthens the story. And and so it's kind of a masculine, feminine, right brain, left brain process to find that for me. I I do think, you know, I I looked at Hero's Journey, I looked at Heroine's Journey, Gustav Freytag's Pyramid, Vladimir Prop, and the screenplay beats, um, and I think another a few others as well, but you know, really, there are some basic structural elements that go through many of them. But the key, the trick is to kind of start with the very personal. And then start thinking a little more about your audience and about how to present a story that people can understand. And again, learn from in the way that we talked about earlier. So I don't know. I think, I think those are all, I love studying all the different structures. And then I love when my students come back and say, you know what, this one, I don't like this, this didn't work, or this one resonated for me, or this felt formulaic, but it's just about knowing the different structures. And for me, a three act structure is, is a kind of a natural way of seeing the world, but it's not for everyone. In any case, I think it's a very, this story is a very personal one but it's also very much grounded in, in myth and traditional storytelling. And I guess that's what my basic philosophy is. It's a mixture of those two elements, putting those things together, your personal experience and what we learn from our ancestors and mentors. And- mm-hmm. Yeah. Along with the hero's journey, I guess I'm wondering as a storyteller, what do you think are some of the most important stories of our time? Or what messages do you think the collective is really in need of right now? Well, you know, of course, this, this whole movement now for, for, you know, diverse voices, all this is, is hugely life-changing, important, you know, world-changing. I think that is, is, maybe probably the biggest thing I've seen in my, or is the biggest thing I've seen in my lifetime as far as a paradigm shift and to be in the midst of it is really exciting. So I would say that I think, you know, just getting, giving people opportunity and validation that their stories matter. And if they have, their voices have been silenced and giving them that platform to be heard, it's, going to change the world and it just has to continue like that and and hopefully will do so I mean I feel this generation is not going to let go of that you know and they shouldn't (laughs) yeah 
I, I think it's also fascinating because there's the stories of our time or that collectively are very present for us. But then, you know, your books have been so influential for decades. And I think that storytelling can really connect us and with others across time. And of course, there's stories that we've been telling for thousands of years and reading for hundreds of years. And and so, yeah, how do we make stories that hold up against the test of time? Or what do you see with the stories that have been able to do that? I think uh, they help us, you know, they start by connecting us to a character in a way, as I mentioned earlier, that, that we feel we can identify with that character. And there are craft techniques that do that, that I talk a lot about in my classes, but, you know, they, they start with that and then they, they often go on some kind of a journey and teach something thematically. And I think there is a universality to that. Also, I just to go back a little to what we were talking about earlier, you know, I was fortunate, so fortunate that I was told my whole life because I was surrounded by happened to be born into a time and place and with parents that said your voice matters your stories are, are important you know they have value what I my goal is as a teacher now so many people do not have that do, do not grow up with that so what I try to do is like how can I give that validation and it is so beautiful to see how people who are carrying these stories these wonderful stories around with them they just need that little bit of validation and and then some little bit of craft which we all which I constantly am learning more about every day but and then it's just like they they just it's just a blossoming it's so beautiful so the more of that I think then uh the more of that kind of support and encouragement we can give to each other the more these beautiful stories will will emerge and hopefully fight this you know wave of perhaps this idea that stories are less important than you know the kind of makeup that you buy or whatever it might be (laughs) you know so I think that there's a very hopeful movement around this validation of voices as well as these other things we're talking about that are maybe trying to combat it yeah well Francesca this has been such a beautiful and heartfelt conversation and I'm wondering as we begin to wrap up I really want to meditate for a moment on the distinctly human goal of so many of your characters which is the search for love Mm -hmm. and often though we're sold false images of what love looks like or even means and I'm thinking of House of Hearts which heavily features a cult focused on finding self-help and so Mm -hmm. I am interested on how do we learn to recognize real and powerful love that's a good (laughs) question it's taken a long time for me I would say um I think knowing the self deeply or at least you know sometimes when we're very young we may not feel we do yet and that's the mean we can't have profound love so I don't want to make it sound like it's out of reach but I think the 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 understanding of the self the understanding of 
the shadow self, the understanding of the wound and the past history, just like you would create a character, really. You know, to create a good character in a story, you need to understand these things about them. Um, I think to be in the world and to really understand love, you, you know, it's still a lot of putting together the severed parts of the self through whatever practices, you know, whether it's talking to a friend, whether it's writing, whether it's another form of art, meditation, all the healing arts, movement, music, um, really those, that is the journey. And then I think once you've begun to repair, and as I said, remember it goes on, the repair could go on for a very long time, but once you've begun the process of awareness around it and support from someone who understands us, you know, then I think it can happen. It's really a lot of, um, I believe in this attachment theory in psychology, which is about finding someone who really sees you in whatever role, they could be a parent, but they might be a mentor, teacher, or friend, and they might be a lover, but, you know, um, might be a child and builds this strong bond with them that then becomes internalized for both of you. And I think that those strengthening those relationships strengthen the self and then allow for more loving relationships to grow out of that. But I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> well, wonderful. Thank you again, Francesca. I really enjoyed this time with you and yeah look forward to and now I just want to curl up with a book honestly I'm like okay oh. but, yeah, I'm ready to hunker down for a moment me too thank you so much this was, it was beautiful to speak with you thank you for listening to for the wild podcast the music you heard today was by 40 million feet India blue and Ariana Saraha and flight behavior for the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glassbell, and Julia Jackson.